Good evening to you all. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn your attention inwardly for a moment, and I'm going to pose a question to you. And the question I'd like to pose to you is, can you bring to mind, without thinking about it too much, a couple of things that make you really happy? Okay, cut. (laughs) Come back. Now, let me tell you what the Buddha sometimes spoke of as one of the things that made him happiness, him the happiest, which was to reflect on his own harmlessness. He would sometimes like to sit and think about how there was no being anywhere in any of the dimensions that had uh, anything to fear from him, that his mind was completely harmless in relationship to his intentions and his actions towards them. That was his eye. And I'm going to talk tonight on this topic of sila, sometimes described as uh, moral restraint or ethical training, moral discipline, which is part of the Eightfold Path and part of what we're practicing here. So you're all practicing this already in taking the five precepts and keeping them while you're here. Uh, Some of you are doing the eight precepts. The eight precepts aren't necessarily uh, ethical in content. They're more additional forms of renunciation or sense restraint. But the five precepts are very much aligned with this moral teaching of the Buddha that shows up in the Eightfold Path. And seal itself is spoken of as being a pristine, traditional, ancient gift, which gives to immeasurable beings freedom from hostility, fear, and oppression. Hmm. That's a pretty strong statement. Restraint is a gift to others as well as a gift to ourselves, as will be uh, explained. One way you can think of this path of bhavana, of development of the heart and mind, is that it's actually developing increasingly refined types of joy and happiness. It's not that sensory pleasure goes away or anything, It's just that there are other things that come up that are developed and recognized as, yeah, this really makes me happy. And I know all of you have touched at least a little bit of this here already, the relief of uh, not feeling craving, for instance, or the happiness of uh, goodwill when you feel it. we're kind of used to thinking of happiness as being tied up in pleasant experiences of a kind of dense, particular nature. But there are other kinds of happiness that actually opens up as we pursue the path of practice and that we can see for ourselves. Let me ask you all another question or two. How many of you feel that you were 
well-grounded or trained in a particular ethical code. Put them up if you have. Okay. That's maybe, maybe 20% of the group. Now, this is an interesting thing and perhaps a, a bit of a change socially because it used to be more the case um, when the mainstream religions of uh, Christianity and Judaism in particular uh, were more prominent in the Western world that it would be typical that you would get this kind of training. If not from your parents in the home, then maybe at school, or maybe you would just absorb it from the culture around you. So how many of you, for instance, could rattle off the Ten Commandments? Put them up, put them up. (laughs) Claim it, claim it. Okay. That's not very many people in the room. That's interesting. Some of you might know something more like uh, the golden rule or something. You've heard that one. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That kind of do not do to others what you yourself would not want done to you. That kind of way of thinking. But it is an interesting thing that a group of people like this, you know, you have, you may not think you do, but you have uh, refined minds compared to uh, a lot of people, most people. A lot of wholesome qualities are already in you and developed, or you would never come to this kind of place to do this kind of thing for six weeks or three months. It would just not ever occur to you that it would be, well, beneficial, useful, possible to go, you know, sit and walk and sit and walk in silence. (laughs) You know, no beers, no (laughs) TV, you know, no devices, no football, no partners. Well, that might be, okay. No partners, you know. That's a lot. You give up a lot to come here and do this. Uh, so there's something, something there, some aspiration, some hope that you have that something will come out of this. Maybe a very particular thing you're hoping to have come out of it or you're hoping to address or you're hoping to, to figure out. Um, and maybe at this point you figured out that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh. I let the secret out. <laughs> or at least it's probably not going to happen in the way that you kind of like thought it was going to happen or hoped it was going to happen or wanted to make happen. But something else is going on. Something is cooking. Something's opening up. Now we come to these practices uh, as we are. And this is the same as it was in the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha himself came across a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different kinds of communities. Some of them were like, eh, get that bald-headed guy with the bowl out of here. It's like, they're a bunch of beggars, right? But some people, some individuals, some communities were more interested. And the Buddha set up his teachings in a way that they were totally, uh, they, the monks, were totally dependent on the lay community for their support. And he offered his teachings to, to lay people in a progressive kind of way. So he didn't, generally speaking, uh, jump into teaching people jhanas. Now why? Why wouldn't he give them the good stuff right at the beginning? 
because they had no foundation to be actually able to hear it, let alone do it. So he would typically teach sila first, or ethical restraint first. Then he would teach what's called samadhi, but more broadly it, it means the meditative trainings. And from that, wisdom. Wisdom. And that's would be giving people what was appropriate for their starting point, for their level of understanding at any given time. Sometimes this is also described as, first he would teach them dana or generosity. Then he would teach them sila, moral restraint. Then he would teach them the meditative trainings. So you see, you know, this occurrence of sila in both of these ways of describing the progressive path is that sila comes before samadhi. Moral restraint is an important part of the teaching. So if we go back to the teachings of the Eightfold Path, again to the, the first step on the Eightfold Path, which is wise view, there is, to repeat, this very important discernment made in mundane wise view. And the important discernment is the truth of karma, karma, and the moral dichotomy. He says, states, actions, intentions born out of ignorance, aversion, and craving are unskillful, unwholesome, and the karmic effect or the karmic impact of those take us in an undesired direction towards more enmeshment with suffering. And likewise, states, actions, intentions born out of generosity, loving kindness and compassion and wisdom, the karmic effect of those is to move us in the direction of liberation, of freedom of mind. And you've had a talk on karma, and there's been a talk on uh, dependent co-arising, sometimes called um, conditional arising or dependent origination, that talks about how the mind can free itself depending on how it connects to and how it relates to uh, experience, what it can bring forward, what it recognizes as, as being skillful and wise, and what it can bring forward in terms of wisdom and wise intention to what is there to be met. So the bottom line on all of this is that It's important to know the difference between wholesome and unwholesome and to try to act from what is wholesome and to strengthen what is wholesome and to refrain from doing what is unwholesome and refrain from acting from what is unwholesome. So when we get to the sila steps of the Eightfold Path, there are three of them, and they're basically framed as don't do's, right? So just like those of you who know the Ten Commandments can testify, but not right now, (laughs) they're very specific too. There's a lot of don't do in there. And the steps of sila in the Eightfold Path likewise are more framed in terms of don't do. So the first of these is related to speech. And it's interesting that that is the first one. 
it points again to the potency of, of speech. Because a lot comes forward in speech, right? A lot of in, intention is spoken. A lot of um, mind states are spoken through speech. Speech has a lot of power, a lot of power. So he says, you should abstain from lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, and idle chatter. Idle chatter. Well, there's always a question of what is idle chatter? Because we all know a certain amount of chit-chat under certain circumstances is a social lubricant, right? But let's, let's talk about uh, the deep end of this first, which is abstain from lying. Okay, the Buddha, uh, as the classic story, story goes, had many lifetimes. And it is said that in his many lifetimes before he was the Buddha, he did all kinds of stuff. He did bad things. But it's interesting that the, it said that the one thing that he never did was to lie, to tell an intentional lie. So this suggests that a commitment to truthfulness towards wanting to know what is true and to not intentionally misrepresenting <coughs> what he believed to be true was somehow central to his own awakening. That urge to know what is so seemingly is at the heart of the, the whole bodhisattva journey of learning how reality is put together and how it works. And the Buddha had, had something to say about lying and it was, one who would tell an intentional lie would do anything. Now that's an interesting take, isn't it? So he was not in favor of that. I don't know if any of you have ever read some of the research on uh, lying. Has anybody read any of that research? You should look it up. I, apparently, we are big fibbers, <laughs> really big fibbers. <laughs> like it goes on, you know, almost every time our lips are <laughs> moving. That may be an over-exaggeration, however, because at least one of the researchers who researched lying, as it turned out, had fabricated some of the data. So <laughs> perhaps thus proving the point more than... Uh, anything the research would have shown, but <laughs> abstain from lying. Does that mean you have to, like, you should compulsively blurt out anything under any circumstances? No. Because the Buddhist is talking about uh, the importance of speech being useful and timely. Right? There may be a lot of things that might be true, even that one would have an impulse to say, but you know what? Under the, under the totality of the circumstances, eh, maybe, that's, maybe that's not good to let that one loose. So this is uh, an important pointing, actually, uh, this idea of timely and useful in relationship to speech, because what it's... What it's uh, pointing to is the fact that this quality of, of mindfulness or this way that mindfulness can manifest called samasampajana, clear comprehension, is always part of the practice of sila as well. right? Having some kind of like big picture sensitivity, some wisdom around the whole field of practice. So if we're going to say what kind of 
speech would be called for, which would be an affirmative practice of this. It might be truthful, timely, useful, friendly, spoken with goodwill, spoken out of goodwill. But it would be uh, an overstatement to, to think that the Buddha said something like, well, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Because he was pretty, if you, there are some places in the suttas where he's, he's given it to somebody. So the question is, is it being said with aversion, with the intention to harm? So truthfulness is important, actually. All right, the second of these is called wise action. So this is the the fourth step on the Eightfold Path, wise action. So this largely overlaps with the five lay precepts that you take every time. So not killing, not stealing... Don't do sexual harming, um, not lying, a.k.a. wrong speech again. Uh, To refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind. Now, intoxicants is an interesting one because it's usually placed as part of the... uh, expansion of this step of the wise action as being one of the elements. And it's in the five late precepts, right? Intoxication. So why is this a big one? Well, if you understand that it's usually phrased as intoxicants which cause heedlessness then that gives you some insight into what's going on there because heedless meaning I don't give a flip, right? So this is a way that sometimes one's natural wisdom, one's even one's ability to recognize what is wholesome or unwholesome, let alone what is skillful, is blurred out or erased, so the Buddha actually in a, a teaching to a young layman uh, went into this in some detail. And I, I think uh, he went into this in some detail probably for a, a good reason related to this particular person and their propensities. So teachings often seem to be that way. When he gets really specific about certain things to certain people, you kind of can intuit a picture that might be framing that. So he says, there's six consequences for indulging in intoxicants which cause infatuation and heedlessness. One, loss of wealth. Two, increase in quarrels. Three, illness. Four, earning a bad reputation. Five, shamelessness, exposure of the body. When I read that, I thought, (laughs) oh, okay, peeing in the street, you know. I got this vision of, you know, some, some of these guys at the Oktoberfest, you know, and they've had, like, too many mugs of those, that, you know, really good German beer, you know, just kind of, like, passed out, <laughs> laying by the, on the ground somewhere. Uh, and then the last one, weakening of discernment and intellect. I think we can probably agree that we don't do our best thinking when we've had a few. Or, has anyone ever been the recipient of or performed oneself uh, a late night phone call? 
(laughs) under the influence of some substance. Okay. Or has one ever been in an environment where everyone is high except you? (laughs) Or had a conversation with someone while you're really high and trying to tell them everything that you've come to realize (laughs) in the last half hour? (laughs) Or have written down all your insights <laughs> that arose. Right? And you get up and the next morning, you might not remember you did it, maybe you didn't, but you find them again and you pull them up. <laughs> Treasures from the sea, are they? Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> so, If you remember that the Buddha says that delusion is our main problem, it's delusion that manifests as craving and aversion and delusion, but it's an act of misunderstanding of how things work, delusion, then we would have to say... uh, Delusion supplementation is probably not going to serve us. Right? Get a little more of that because I don't have enough. So, so again, you know, wise action here, uh, it's not that the Buddha is saying don't kill. But, you know, if you, you know, push somebody down a flight of only a few stairs, that's okay. You know, the basic idea behind it is non-harming, right? Non-harming. Stealing. What's it like to be in an environment where you can't trust other people not to take your stuff? It's pretty disconcerting. I remember once I was in the Seattle Public Library and I was working on a project and I had, I just like left a tablet and a pencil there at my place while I went to use the restroom or something. And I came back and it was like gone. And it wasn't so much that it was just this thing. I mean, it wasn't like, a big expensive item or something, but it was just the reaction I had is like, who's around here? You know, it used to be here at uh, IMS for many, many, many years until really quite recently. There were no locks on any of the doors. There was no locks to the outside. The individual rooms didn't have any locks. I remember the first time I I came here and um, was thinking about coming on staff. I was walking around upstairs. uh, and I went through an administrative area and there was like a, a printer. And right next to the printer was like a stack of checks, blank checks. And I thought, wow. I don't think the I don't think the auditor you know would like that their internal controls here but it was like it didn't occur to anybody that somebody would steal Somebody once asked me when I first started coming here what it was like and I said well it's a really different kind of place it's a really different kind of vibe I said you know like if you left a, like a big stack of 20s on a table in the dining room and you went back to get them, if they weren't there, you could go to the office because somebody turned them in. Makes a big difference in our communities. You know, sexual misconduct. 
You know, this is a sexuality is an instinctual behavior, right? There's a whole range of possible outcomes in relationship to this energy. You can form families, have lifelong partnerships, experience joy and trust and a lot of pleasantness, bond deeply, or it can, at the other end, can be degradation, violence, a lack of trust, breaking down of communities, breaking down relationships between people when commitments are made and they're not honored. So pay attention. Pay attention. And it's not so simple as just rote. Right? Again, sampajana. Sometimes more than the, the letter of the law is called for, not misusing your own sexual energy. Right? For instance, not training the mind in relationship to um, orienting your own sexuality in the direction of degrading or violent porn. What is it? Is that hurting somebody else directly? What, what is that? Maybe, maybe not. How is that shaping your own heart and mind? How is that affecting the relational field you have with other humans? Not to answer for you. This is your own exploration. But certainly, the nature of the communities that we live in are very much affected by what individuals and the collective do in relationship to these areas of human behavior. And then the last of these is wise livelihood. Wise livelihood. How you make your bank. So, said in the negative, the Buddha talks about how his followers should avoid business and weapons, human beings, we'll get back to that, meat, intoxicants again, and poison. Well, poison you would. So, weapons. Well, we're familiar with the, you know, the common ones, the, the Buddha, at one point in describing his own life, talked about how he experienced the world when he was uh, leaving, motivated to leave the palace, and he was talking about how violent the time was. And then he went through this list of all these different kinds of weapons that were around that humans were using on each other. Those are the, the physical weapons. So now we have a whole set of new ones, do we not? This also ties into wise speech, but digital means to arouse enmity, right? To misrepresent, misrepresent the truth, to incite each other, to polarize with each other. (laughs) One of the things that's sort of interesting, this whole idea of deep fakes, folks have heard of this, I'm sure, I'm guessing. You know, there being the possibility now of actually putting together, oh, I don't know, should I use myself? A video of Winnie, you know, sounding like Winnie, looking like Winnie, saying some really terrible things or uh, doing terrible things. And it really looks just like the person doing all of those things. Would that be an example of business and weapons? Certainly it would be an example of potentially reputational destruction, which is... uh, 
one of the things that's common now. Traffic in human beings. Well, you know, slavery's been going on a long time. How about things that are not quite slavery, like the Uyghurs situation, right? The use of working conditions that are so subhuman that but the people are so desperate they can't say no to it. Traffickers, refugee trafficking for profit. So if we were going to look at this area in an affirmative kind of way, we could say something like work or earn a living in ways that express and support living beings, loving kindness and compassion, and maybe the earth. Can we consider those kinds of things in looking at what we choose to do with the energy that we put into livelihood. Because for most of us, most of you who are working age people, you know, unless you've dropped out of the economy for a variety of reasons, an awful lot of your time goes into work. A lot of your prime energy goes into work. So can, can you consider that dimension in terms of what kind of work you pursue and where you pick to work to the extent there's any picking and acknowledging that sometimes there isn't any picking to be had, right? You're in a situation where you have to have an income and you have to do things. But can you at least incline the mind to not do things that are harming, right? To not sell cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. So let's talk about the how sila fits into practice. And this also relates in part to the order in which the Buddha offered the teachings. We've seen that samadhi or that kind of meditative cultivation falls after sila. So, you know, a bottom line is that um, if you were to sit down to meditate while the mind is still actively acting out, it wouldn't be pretty. So there would be chaos because there would be a lot of uh, many unwholesome states in the mind. There would be uh, likely remorse. There would be difficulty settling the mind. So Sila really supports calmness and it supports concentration and reflecting on your own sila or reflecting on your own goodness is actually a support for practice so it's one of the ways that you can actually gladden the mind if the mind is dry or it's losing confidence in itself, to actually go back through your life and consider things that you have done that have been beneficial in an ethical kind of way to yourself or others. You know, times when you've exercised moral restraint, times when you've been, for instance, actively generous or kind 
I can remember uh, being on retreat teaching, a, lo- a long retreat, month long, I think. And there was a particular yogi that, you know, was kind of dragging along the bottom and was having a, a hard time getting traction and, you know, just wasn't sure whether they could do it or not. And um, I gave them a task. I said, what I'd like you to do is take some paper and a pen and sit down and make two lists, one of your wholesome deeds and the other of your wholesome qualities of mind. Now, this would be something that would be classically offered or instructed in Asia. And it's an interesting thing that in the West, many times people's reaction to getting this task would be, is, is, I don't want to do that. I just don't want to. Now that's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) Because I would bet in many cases if a teacher said to you, I want you to take two sheets of paper. I want you to write down your crappy attributes and the terrible things that you've done. They'd say, give me more paper. (laughs) So anyway, so that is an indication there may be a certain amount of distortion in how the broader Western culture tends to... hmm, view one's individuality. But anyway, so I gave the yogi this particular task. And when they came back to my joy, they had like started and it like went on and went on went on. I had them read it to me. And when they were done, they packed it up, and I said, you're good to go. You got what it takes to do the practice. And there was a kind of confidence there and a kind of happiness there after having done that kind of reflection. So I want to talk a little bit about um, these two uh, qualities of mind. These are considered to be universal beneficial qualities in the mind. Wholesome, in a wholesome mind. One is called HIRI. H-I-R-I, HIRI. And the other one is called OTAPA. O-T-T-A-P-P-A. And the Buddha calls these the guardians of the world. The guardians of the world. That's a pretty strong view of the role these qualities have. So the way these are usually translated are as moral shame and moral dread. Now, at first listening, you might think, oh, that seems like that's that, that kind of list you were just talking about that westernized people tend to have easy access to. Guilt and shame, guilt and shame. But it's really not what is meant by it. So that's not the best translation, but it's the most frequent And that's why I mentioned it. So, other translations for hiri are uh, moral conscience or moral 
regret. And the alternative translation for otapa is moral concern or respect for others. So what's it mean? It means that the mind is tuned to, in the first case, tuned to and cares about being ethical. And when, when one is not ethical, when one causes harm or is harmed or goes over the, the line in terms of ethics, one is bothered by that. So one is not heedless. One notices and it's doesn't like it. <laughs> Has the discernment to realize this is not good. Or sometimes that was a bad one. Right? Has anybody had any of this stuff come up while you're sitting here? And it's very normal and it you know a lot of things can come up in practice, but certainly there's a kind of flushing out somewhere, sometimes from out of the blue, of things that we have done and we remember and now it it goes, ah. Right? It hurts. It hurts now. The memory of that hurts. So the skillful move, the move that would make this within the understanding of Hiri, is not that I'm bad, I'm like a hopeless sinner because you know I did that thing that was really unskillful and harmful, but just the recognition that the action itself is not something to be repeated. So if you didn't have a conscience, it wouldn't bother you. So having a conscience and recognizing that that was not, that was not lined up is actually a good thing because it indicates in part that you know, or there's some internalized understanding of mundane wise view and that dichotomy of what is to be cultivated and what is to be let go of. And your conscience is reminding you of that. So it's a good thing. Okay, the second of these is called otapa. And sometimes it's translated as moral concern or respect for others. So this is more along the lines of um, I wouldn't want to get a reputation for this. Right? Whoever your um, the person is that you respect, you know, whether it's your I don't know, your mentor or your mother or the Dalai Lama or something, kind of like, uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to be that kind of person. You ever ha- have somebody, you know, do something that was really uh, unskillful and it kind of comes to the surface, sometimes in a public way, like, I don't know, on a video or something like that, and the, the person says, Something like, that's not me. You know, I'm not that person. Well, at that moment they were that, that person or they did that behavior. But, and maybe there's some deflection in there. But there's also a little bit of, like, I don't want to be like that. Like, I, I don't want you to think that that's all there is to me and that I think that that's, that's okay and, like, I'm going to double down on that and I'm, you know, going to build an identity around it. 
So in certain kinds of ways, it can be really useful to care about the opinion of another or others. It can be wholesome. Like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that that person that's, you know, in the video, you know, screaming at a pedestrian because they, you know, crossed the bike path or something. So Hiri and Otapa, the guardians of the world. So in talking about these and thinking about these two and some of these other uh, implications of ethics and recognizing that ethical training is not going on within the broader culture very much. How can we be surprised at the state of the collective? If nobody's even thinking about it or intentionally practicing it, especially in terms of the raising of younger people, where are they getting their ideas of what is ethical? Now, it's, it's interesting to see, and, you know, I'm old enough to kind of have a vantage point, too. So... When I was young, the people around me belonged to a religious, particular religious system, and I was brought up in that, and I was educated in that, and I learned things like the Ten Commandments and, you know, faith, hope, and charity and that kind of stuff. As were other members of my immediate and extended family. So we're all raised within this. And so this was spoken about very overtly, and the parents modeled this behavior. So next generation down, like my generation, except for me, no practicing of any particular religious tradition, but they're all ethical people because they were raised by ethical people and heard ethical trainings. Good so far. Next generation down, the parent, the no ethical training The parents are still good and responsible people, so there's some modeling. However, the kids are all immersed in the larger culture where there is no ethical foundation. So they're subject to a bombardment of all kinds of stimuli, views, and opinions, very little of which is oriented in any kind of way to actually supporting them in having a moral center from which to operate. So we shouldn't be surprised at their vulnerability. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know who he is? You ever heard of him? He's one of the main... uh, Western translators of the the Buddhist suttas. So he's a fine scholar. Has a book called The Buddha's Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. So it's a very interesting book. I would recommend it. I'll I'll write it down later. So, So he starts with the foundation for social and communal harmony being 
mundane, wise view. The truth of karma and the truth that actions, intentions, born out of craving, delusion, and aversion are unwholesome and lead in the direction of suffering and further enmeshment in avijja, and that the opposite, actions born out of generosity, renunciation, loving kindness, and wisdom, are onward leading and free the mind. And he says that that has to be the foundation for a harmonious community. That you can't kind of like skip over that and just address things at a mass kind of level. So it's a very interesting thing, you know. In the Eightfold Path, the Buddha has isolated what is essential to know and what is essential to practice, to awaken. So the fact that he puts this emphasis on both moral restraint in these sections, see the sections of the Eightfold Path, as well as active cultivation uh, in wise attention, wise intention of generosity, metta, compassion, renunciation, tells you it's there's two things that are required. Yes, there are the active cultivations, including the cultivation that's being done in metta and in vipassana, and yes, in concentration practice. But in order for that to really be fueled, in order for you to really understand what's going on within that, you need the full frame. And part of the frame is the development of ethical restraint. So there's a lot more going on with this teaching than just don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. So there is the truth of restraint of actions on on the gross level, right? And then the inference from what is restrained, the definition or the description of what is restrained of what is good to develop. What could substitute for that? That would be in accord with wise view and wise intention. And with that, you're equipped for the practice path. You're supported by this in the practice path. Wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So if you think of the the Dharma wheel, the eight... You look at the Dharma wheel. Did you ever notice it's got eight spokes? One of the Buddha's early sermons was talked about as a turning the wheel of the Dharma, turning the wheel of the Dharma. So all of these, these aspects inform each other and work together. And it's not in a strictly linear way. But they're all essential and mutually reinforcing. So may we all move towards increasing integration as human beings and towards increasing integrity as human beings and be willing to let go of that which does not serve us or others in the interest of the emergence of higher and higher levels of happiness. May our practice be for the benefit and well-being and liberation of all beings everywhere without exception.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.